let's just kick off and see where the crazy train goes to. Sounds good to me, mate. Which part of Bali are you in? I'm in Ubud. Oh, it's just such a lovely place. Gorgeous. I actually had a, a long-sleeved, a very light, it's almost like a long-sleeved T-shirt that I wear almost all the time and it's got sort of Buddhist symbolism mm. on it and it, it's my Ubud uh, memory. Ubud shirt. Yeah, I've got two of them. I've had them for about 10 years and it's almost as if it's day one. Mm. It's just nice. amazing. And I can remember the day I bought them it was early in the morning, so all of the, that main sort of market strip had opened up. Mm. Not in the market, but one of the main roads. There's a lovely cafe along there, or there was. Hopefully it's still there. I can't remember. I just can't remember the name of the road. But I was the first person in the shop, so the shopkeeper was very happy about how auspicious it would be that the day has started off with a sale. Mm. Just such a wonderful experience being in that kind of a space and supporting the local community and then... You buy something and it lasts forever. It's great. Mm. And also stands in as a kind of talisman, right? Like it's more than just a T-shirt, obviously, because it's got all of that attached into it. And it gets a lot of comments and a lot of people ask about it or just mm. comment on it. It's lovely. It's lovely. Yeah. But that's, yeah, that's my sort of link back to Bali because I can't get there at the moment. You cannot, it's true. Uh, for a long time, uh, in, a, in a previous part of my journey, when I was owning a gym, I would be over sort of two or three times a year to do retreats, about 40-ish mm. minutes on the roads, on the winding roads from where you are now. I don't know the name of the place. It's not on a map. Mm. Uh, the retreat space is called Sharing Bali. And uh, you would find it online more likely than you would to, would be to drive past it. It's a parcel hmm. of land across the road from a village in the middle of nowhere. Sounds amazing. It is just brilliant. And you know, an, an hour from the volcano and all of that kind of stuff. So everything's hmm. fairly close. Doesn't take too long to get there once you fly into Denpasar. Hmm. So just a wonderful space. And, and different from the, the normal... I suppose, Australian experience of Bali, which is staying on those southern beaches and not really getting out very much. Uh, sort of a true experience of the country, meeting local people and understanding culture and community. Yeah, I miss it. Mm. I miss it. How long have you been there now? Eight years. Wow. And, and what drew you to move your life there? Um, I think, I think it was probably the same as a lot of people that either visit or stay here. For me, it was a sense that, um, I had all of the check boxes marked. So I had a job that allowed travel that earned ridiculous amounts of money. I had the women, I had the lifestyle. I would travel for three or four months a year, just on my own. Like I had a really nice on paper life. And, mm -hmm. um, and it felt empty. It felt like I was missing soul would be a better way to put it. Yes. And I realized if I kept doing what I was doing, um, it was going to dry me up. And it was kind of a do or die moment. Do I keep going or do I stop? And I chose the latter and I had no idea what to do with myself. So I came to Bali to do a yoga teacher training. 
which is also a very common thing over here. Um, and kind of the rest is history. I, mm. I fell in love with the place. I started working here. I, I, I felt for the first time in eight years, there was a place that I could stay without wanting to leave within three or four months. Yeah. I can understand the pool. Mm. It sounds, sounds similar to my move from Melbourne. So I'm a, I'm a Western suburbs of Melbourne boy, always grew up, lived in the suburbs. Not the, not the nicest of environments, but you kind of get comfortable with what you're used to. And then my wife and I holidayed here in and around this area in Noosa for about 10 years. Mm. And one day, the day before we were going back to Melbourne, we said, why is this not home? How do we make this home? Yeah. How do we make that happen? And when we started asking the how question rather than the why question, we worked out how to do it. It took us two years hmm. because we didn't want to come up here. If it had been me, I probably would have come up here with a backpack and hmm. let, it, let it all work out but with family, two kids. Hmm. You, can't, you can't just go on a wing and a prayer, unfortunately. There are logistics involved. So two years, ended up up here. We're not going back. The power of powerful questions. Yes. The power of power. I like that. The power of powerful questions. Mm. It's a lot. It's a lot about asking the right powerful question at the right time too. I remember Tony, one of Tony Robbins favorite quotes is um, the quality of your life is determined by the quality of your questions. Mm. Yeah. Good point. Right. And it's exactly that you say the difference between why and how is huge. It's everything. The one Absolutely. frames you on a possibility landscape and one frames you in more of a victim landscape. Exactly. Exactly. And I say when I'm seeing people clinically or in a sort of in a coaching capacity, when we ask why we're getting very forensic mm. and we're, we're problem solving, but more, it's more about understanding and that's not necessarily what's required movement change is required and when you get that movement that momentum happening if you're still curious about why then look back and maybe there's yeah. something to learn that's helpful but it is so so easy to fall into the trap of saying to yourself asking yourself why me why does this keep happening to me and then you get stuck in the loop mm. rather than asking something like how can i get out of it Totally. Yeah. I, I've started to ask the question, what one thing can I do now? Hmm. Hmm. What one thing? Because we're all individually, we're quite intelligent creatures and we have a lot of ideas. And part of the time, I think part of the problem is we have so many ideas. We don't know which one to do. We don't know hmm. which one to action. So what one thing? Yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's just such a massive difference between problem and possibility. And, mm. you know, being in the physical world, you said you train, it's no different to training from, in my mind, your muscles. It's like you, you can train your brain towards possibility because your brain recognizes whatever you put into it. So it's that classic example of you're going to buy a red Toyota. <laughs> thinking about it and all you see is fucking red Toyotas everywhere on the yeah. roads right they were always there 
but you notice them more. So if you ask just the question why, because why can be powerful too, but if it's just the question why, it also opens a lot of space to why not. And yes. when you ask that question, you will find reasons not to do the thing you know you are meant to do and have to do. But how can I do this? Frames in a place of possibility rather than problem. Exactly. Exactly. So powerful. Just that small change. I, I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated with language, especially self-talk. Mm. And how the shift of one word can have a dramatic impact in perspective and opportunity. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Why, how, even what, what can I do now? How can I move? It's such a powerful thing. And I think it's really sharp right now for a lot of people locked down, can't move. I know locally. And when I say locally, I mean in Australia that Melbourne and Sydney are Melbourne's in its seventh lockdown or something. Sydney's in week seven or eight of their second lockdown. Yeah. And it must be maddening. And people are past the point where they've done everything they feel like they can do. They've done some house renovations. They've spent a whole bunch of, they've played all of their games with their family. They've read their books. Mm. And they're stuck with what can I do now? Mm. And then when you can't find it, maybe you fall back into why. <laughs> so there's a little bit of unrest now. Why is this taking so long? Totally. So totally. I get that. So you guys are in a tough spot in many places in Australia. Look, I, honestly, and I say this over and over again, where I am, we're blessed. Mm. I think we've had, I, I, I don't know how I can lose track, but we've had two or three lockdowns and the last one was a week. Hmm. And it was only because the a, a part of the population in Brisbane, when Brisbane gets locked down, decides to drive up the coast to us. So last time there was a problem in Brisbane, we got locked down, so it didn't get moved up here. So you know, we bear the brunt of the capital city. But again, I dare not complain. Mm-hmm. It was one week. We can, we can manage that. It had, had a personal effect, had a business effect. It's, it's minute compared to what's going on in other parts of the world. So I get that. just wear it. I know so Bali is somewhat isolated at the moment. What's what's the feeling around the island? Or your part? No, it's of interesting. It? We went, Meg, Meg, my wife and I went back to the US and a few months ago in July, June, July. And when we left, the sensation was the entire island was opening back up. And while we were away, they went into a huge lockdown. The, the strictest that Bali has had or Indonesia has had since since COVID started, mm-hmm. um, which was a little unsettling for us to come back into that. And, um, and the, the feeling right now is one of tentatively reopening, I think. At the okay. moment, the cases have gone down. I think there's enough people vaccinated, perhaps, or it was just the isolation. It, it's still relatively open compared to someplace like Sydney. Like you can still drive down the street and go to a cafe and the cafe will be busy. Um, there's still events happening and things like that, but uh, it's not what it was. And I think in Bali, at least in the circles that I run in, there's this, this paradox that I remember in that the whole situation over the past year and a half has been hugely 
growth field for me, for a lot of my friends. The insights coming in have, have been huge mm. and it's been really valuable. And I'm like, I look at that and I go, wow, that is an amazing thing to stop and get off whatever hamster wheel we were on and reconsider what we're here for, right? But I hold that simultaneously with the tragedy it brings, both yes. in health and life loss and in Bali in the fact that 80% of its, its income comes from tourism. Of course. And to drive down the street and see shops shut and families struggling, it's, it's tough. So it's somewhere in between those two things, the appreciation and gratitude of what it brings, as well as the tragedy and what it brings. And I don't necessarily see those things as opposites. Connected in some way. I think there's, I think that the, there's a, a powerful prospect for gratitude within grief. That's really well put. Yeah. I have to take that one with me after we finish calling it. So I, I get gems with every person I talk to. Hmm. And uh, that's one of them. Take that for a walk in the bush later this afternoon. and That's the perfect place for it. I think, I think in general, grief is something that men don't tend toward letting themselves feel. I would agree 100%. Hmm. I can remember the last time a, a very close uh, family member died. So my, my uncle, my dad's youngest brother. And I had an interesting relationship with him because he was almost a generation removed from my dad. So he kind of sat in between my dad and I. Hmm. And he was a quadriplegic, uh, struggled with his life because he, he had minimal use of his arms. But he also self-medicated with marijuana. So he had this interesting alternative view of life as, and I say alternative to sort of my family structure, hmm. which was very much sort of toed the line, doctors and government and all that kind of stuff, not, not into a crazy sort of conservative uh, realm. But it was interesting. It was a different, different approach to the world. And I don't want to misrepresent my family. My dad will listen to this and say, we were not conservative. <laughs> but we lost him a couple of years ago. And I can remember being deeply sad and unable to cry. And I'm okay with crying, but, it, but at that moment, it wouldn't come. Yeah. And, and because I couldn't find that release from the, um, you know, just the emotional release at that time, I had to deal with it in other ways. And it was amazing because I can remember wanting to cry yeah. and having the feel of the need to cry. And yet the physical action just did not occur. And so I released it in other ways. I don't, for me, I don't feel like I was holding that back to be more manly or to be more, but it wouldn't come out. And, and I spent a lot of time after that thinking about how we as men, there are preconceptions about how we should that word again, how we should behave in and around grief that we place upon ourselves and that the society places upon us. And it is an interesting dynamic. I think you're absolutely right that I don't know what the answer is. And that's, that's lovely as well. Not knowing what the answer is. I'd be interested in your perspective on it, how, how, you know, the masculine doesn't really deal with it so well or process it. So well, or whatever that may be, I'll, 
Excuse me if I'm putting words in your mouth. No, it's all good, man. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you remember seeing your dad cry? Very rarely. Yeah. Very rarely. I, I couldn't tell you the last time I saw him cry. Admittedly, yeah. we're not we're in different states now, so that's different. But yeah, there was no way to model that. I don't know of apart from funerals. Honestly, I can't think of any time where any of the prominent men in my life would have cried. So, I mean, there's the. I'm not sure if you can hear. We have a puppy in the background. Um, I didn't know if that was a puppy or a bird, but that's fine. It's beautiful. Let me, as I speak, I'm just going to no, do what you need to do. It's live and unedited. The joy of the puppy, ladies and gentlemen. It's a very, she's a very sweet little puppy. Um, so this is the puppy first and foremost. Oh, that's a proper puppy. That is a proper puppy. How many weeks have we got there of joy? About four. Oh, yeah. Good Friend lord. Found her in a rice, a rice paddy. No, mama, nothing around. So we've been fostering her for a little bit. Magnificent. She's tiny. She's a sweetheart. Well, um, she's happy now. If she's on your lap. She'll be happy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think, think we're sponsored in... by dogs. This podcast seems to be sponsored by dogs and really? puppies and a couple, a couple of cats. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I think therein lies your answer, Adam, in a lot of ways. Mm. It's like, um, you know, I, I, I have a very similar feeling when it comes to, to crying. I have no problem with it, though it just really happens. Mm. And why would it, if it was never demonstrated to us from the male figures in our lives? So even if we never got the cultural conditioning that a lot of men have gotten, that um, crying is for pussies or crying for girls or, or whatever it is like in New Zealand it was if you showed any emotion it was kind of like eat a teaspoon of concrete and harden the fuck up right yeah but even if you never got that directly from your father or your mentor figures you still get the learned behavior of not expressing through tears yes You're, so I think that has a a huge amount to do with it so it's not so much a conscious choice or ill will or feeling of lesser if you do cry but it's this weight that we carry from our fathers and our father's fathers. Here you go, baby. She was crying. Um, of a generation that absolutely got that messaging. Like my grandfather in the war absolutely got that messaging. My father just so much absolutely got that messaging. Yes. And we're simply carrying the weight of that on our shoulders as well. Hmm. I can feel, I, I was just thinking as you were talking about, there's no real model for showing tears, for showing the release of grief. And yet, and I can't speak for every man, but I can speak for many men that I've connected with and my friends that were very good at seeing how to be angry. Yeah. We've seen that demonstrated before. And I don't mean this with necessarily with violence, although I'm sure there is a component of that in some people's lives, which is unfortunate. But we're good at that <laughs> for the most part. We've seen that. And again, even if our dads weren't 
or, or, or our male mentors or those masculine figures in our lives, even if they weren't angry or aggressive, it's still pervasive. 100%. So it is very interesting that, yeah, to, to remember that. I can't, I can't help think that those two things are related too. They must be in some way. Brene Brown, There's so much pressure. Anger is the face that shame wears in public. You know. Sorry, I, I, I did not hear where you said that came from. Brene Brown. Ah. Oh. Anger well. is the face that shame wears in public. I'm like, we, yeah. If you've never given them a way to deal with your your emotions in a powerful way mm. and an allowing way, then of course they're going to come out skewed and fucked up. It's like you can't selectively numb your own emotions. No. No, it's like just adding pressure to the boiler until one of the one of the rivets pops out and takes out someone's eye at a hundred feet. Totally. Brene Brown is the source of the name of this podcast and my entire business. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I I just I love her to bits. And I love that she's feminine, but her message is so applicable regardless of where you are, when you can understand what she truly means by being vulnerable and understanding the dynamics of shame and guilt. And yeah, I can uh, far out. I just sat for a period of time with these on and her in my ear, book Mm. followed by book, followed by book. Mm Uh, and that was that was profound because learning new dynamics and ways of being able to express oneself, myself, without shame or guilt. I feel this right now, and that's okay. Mm. It's quite massive. Yeah, I really, I really liked. It. I can't. I, I'm sure I've heard her say what you just said, but I had forgotten it, and it is. Anger seems to be the default emotion or the default behavior when we don't know a better way or we can't get in touch with the way to get that out. Yeah. Which is interesting because wouldn't it be nice if we could default to love? (laughs) It just seems to be a whole lot more difficult to do that. Well, it's possible, of course. I think... um... It's quite, it's quite a big rabbit hole, but... Let's go down it, brother. <laughs> at, least, at least the way that I see it is... Um, I work with a friend of mine here and we, we run workshops. We call it the Ubud Fight Club, UFC, the other one, right? <laughs> Perfect. And, Perfect. Um, my background's in martial arts. His, he's, he was an amateur-ranked boxer. And then we, we bring men's work from my experience in studying with David Data, Eli Buran, Chris Sinyata, and the men's work world. And combine that in with boxing. So awesome. it's it's, it's kind of like a spiritual fight club. It's somewhere between men's circles and a fight gym, right? So we bring these things in because the way that I see it is that um, there's an incredibly powerful life force that comes in the soul of masculine, and it has wrapped up into it competition. And it has striving yes. and it has energy and it has heart rate and it has adrenaline. It has all of these things which can be totally beautiful and expressed 
mm-hmm. um, in a powerful way. The um, I think I can't remember which tribe it was, but there's an African word for this. It's called Latima. And it's like that, that positive life force that comes with everything to do with competition and striving. Like it's a beautiful masculine attribute, but at least the way that we're raised, broadly speaking, falls in one of two ways. One is we see this expressed as anger through a father figure. So it's that same energy is there, but it gets twisted and warped into some anger and aggression. Mm-hmm. The second way is, um, particularly in my generation, is that everything to do with masculine is somehow taught that we're bad. So masculinity as a whole thing is taught to be toxic. Yes. Um, dominant patriarchy. And then that whole thing of masculinity is, is just said as bad and thrown out the window, leaving us almost apologizing for being men. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then... And I hear and you. Then, and then not only is the toxic and the dominance thrown out, which there is a lot of good reason for. Like I don't want to under undersell this as we've got a lot of, lot to answer for traditionally as men. But the feeling of Latima, the feeling of a positive way to channel that thing that is so much part of our soul, is also thrown out. Yes. And we're left diminished and emasculated because of it. Yeah, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Hundred percent. Yeah, it is an unfortunate thing. I I I read a lot of at at the moment in and around. uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to choose my language carefully because it's very easy to get misconstrued, and I won't censor myself. But in and around the feminist push, and I'm all for feminism and equality and all of the positive aspects of that. But I don't like the idea of a zero sum game where, to bring up the feminine, you have to diminish the masculine. Nor do I like the opposite, which is to bring up the masculine, you've got to diminish the feminine. There, there is a way. And we've known about it for thousands of years. You, you, there are symbols. You look at the yin yang, it's a symbol of exactly what we're aspiring to attain. And, and this term toxic masculinity as a catch all for all things masculine being bad is, uh, I think it is attracting the opposite result of what people who are pushing for true and what I would say authentic feminism, it's missing that because it is diminishing the masculine and therefore the, the feminine doesn't get the benefit of the masculine. The, the, the strength in that polarity is gone. So it's I can remember a friend long time ago we were, we were in a group, men and women, and someone talked about aggression being negative. And she said to me, after the sort of, we had an aside, she said, what's wrong with aggression? I, like, I find aggression to be attractive in a man because she didn't see aggression as aggression towards or aggression that would turn to violence. It was mm. a positive energy. And I think that, when you used that word, which was Latima, Latima. That's what that's what reminded me of that. There, there are aspects of all of this stuff that gets bundled in a box and shoved under the bed that can be harnessed. It's almost it's almost the old Star Wars thing where you, you've got all this power and you can go to the light side or you can go to the dark side with it. 
Yeah, kind of, right? It's like, it's a root energy that can be expressed in many different ways. Mm. But we're not taught many healthy ways to do it. You know, we're not taught great ways. So a lot of us have to teach upon ourselves because most of us don't even have some kind of elder or mentor in our life, you know? So Which true. would traditionally be that role. Exactly. And, and, and we miss the ceremony of the, the coming of age where there are a group of elders and often uh, split by gender in the ceremonial affairs to guide one into being an adult, whatever that means for that culture. Hmm. And I think, I think this is one of the reasons why we as men continue into our adult years as boys we, we don't have, it, it hasn't, the baton has not been handed over. And, uh, I, I, I only recently realized that I had been, and this was as a, about a 40 year old man, that I was still interacting with my dad as if I was a boy. Yeah. I thought, ah, that's why the dynamic is, is thus. And it wasn't until I really and truly realized that at a conscious level that I could approach him as a man. Mm. And now we have, I, mean, I don't get to see him because he's in Victoria. So I, I guess I see him like this, like we're seeing each other now. Sure. But we are now adult men and he's still my father and I'm still his son, but I'm no longer a boy. And because boy, I don't approach shift. him, I don't, I, could have just been the work I was doing with the men that were around me, a realization mm. from, because it was a realization. It's one of those things where I had an aha moment. Got we it. speak of what, aha moments. What, we were like, what happened? I'm just curious. Like, you, I, honestly, just before the aha moment? I, I cannot recall it, but I, I can only remember talking to my men's circle about realizing it. Hmm. So if it came to be in a dream, if it can, mm -hmm. I don't, I do not recall what the moment was, but I can recall sitting in circle with men saying, I've just realized that I don't have to interact with my father as a boy anymore. Mm. Powerful. And we all, I, I don't, I can't say this is true for other people, but I definitely see the patterns in men that I know who are still boys. Yeah. And, and that's okay. Cause that's where they are. And I am not being judgmental. I think it speaks to a lot of what we see in society goes back to what we started talking about with this inability to express grief and, and we, we know anger and now we're also taught this and we're taught that. And yet we still haven't worked out how to be men for the most part. Let, let me ask you a question on that. When did you feel like you became a man? Oh, <sighs> I don't know. I think I've only recently really fully stepped into experiencing life rather than thinking about experiencing life Oof. Uh, in, in the last say five or 10 years. Say because that one my, again, Adam, say that one again. I want to hear that one again. Uh, I, I just, honestly, that just came through me. I don't know the words I, I used, but it, it, that I am experiencing life rather than thinking about the experience of life huh. and being a man. And I think for the longest time, because I started investigating the journey, 
the work as a teenager. I, I come from a lifelong background of martial arts. I started judo when I was eight. I think that put me on the path mm-hmm. and on and off with martial arts, but more on than off. So three quarters of my life doing martial arts. And I think that got me into Eastern mysticism and philosophy and all of that kind of stuff. But my pursuit was to learn to accumulate knowledge and it became intellectual where I knew all of this stuff, but I didn't feel all of this stuff. Uh Didn't Uh live all of this stuff. Hmm. So perhaps in in an roundabout way to answer your question about stepping into being a man, it was in and around the same time that I realized if you you don't think it, you do it, you be it. Yeah, brother. My wife would answer that for you in a, in a heartbeat. She could, <laughs> she would know the answer to that. I think that's a beautiful answer. I think the the and I can relate to it from my own experience of thinking about life rather than actually experiencing it. It's a vast difference between the two. And it's amazing what can come out in behaviour uh, with interactions with my children, hmm. with my with my wife, with with my father that that it's because it's pure, even if the wrong words come out, the intent is so obvious and so clear that might've used the wrong words, but it's still okay. I'm still picking up what you're putting down, brother. (laughs) It's uh, one of my favorite quotes is who you are speaks so loudly that no one hears a word you say. We're just going to have quote upon quote that I'm going to have to pull out of this conversation. It's a good one, right? Yeah. But it speaks to me, it speaks to exactly what you're describing about experiencing as opposed to thinking of experiencing, you know. If I think about what I'm experiencing and I come into an interaction, people will feel me in a very different way than I'm actually experiencing that thing. Mm-hmm. It's even similar to crying, thinking about crying, thinking about being sad and why you should be sad is very different to being sad. <laughs> yes. You know? And, and there's something in and around being okay with being sad, feeling grief, experiencing these quote unquote negative emotions. And I don't turn them as such, but society seems to have an opinion about happy, good, sad, bad, excitement, good, grief, bad. Mm. In a clinical practice, it's very, uh, very obvious these Uh, value labels being put on emotions because people come in and they don't want to feel a certain way because it's a bad feeling. Yeah. Well, when we reframe that and you can accept that it's okay right now to feel X and then work out how to move on from that. If, if it's the right time for you to move on, if, if your if your mum just died, you're not supposed to feel happy that, that, doesn't that's psychopathic sociopathic it's a it was a dysfunction in the emotional state totally sit with it it's okay sit with it and i think um i think you know a lot of what we lack around grief and and tears is examples of powerful men crying powerfully because there's a different there's a different and at least in my my mind of feeling powerfully and crying powerfully without collapse. So you can cry with collapse and you can cry without it. Mm. You know, my favorite example of this is actually from movies. It's Russell Crowe and Gladiator. Uh Uh-huh. So here's this dude that is a powerful dude. Yes. But often has tears streaming down his face. Yes. 
He's not collapsed in a corner. Why me? You know, not the victim. It's not a. It's not a victim. It's not a a bad thing. He's standing in himself powerfully, feeling it and letting experience. And and you know, it's it's not so often that I see this in movies. It's very little that I see this in life. I know a couple of men that can be moved to tears by the ocean, right? Or oh. allow themselves to be overcome with the emotion and express it. But that example of, I think we lump in with crying or feeling grief, being less, being diminished, being victim. So of course we don't want to collapse and become a victim. I don't, I don't actually want that. No. But there's, a, there's a, a, a third way, so to speak. And that is to let your whole body feel whatever it is you're feeling and let whatever comes, comes and be powerful within your grief. It's not a weak emotion. Be powerful within your grief. I think so. Mm. I think there's a lot to grieve. And then you can let it go. And then you can let it go. Yes. Well, if nothing else, these conversations scratch my own itch. I love it. <laughs> it's wonderful to have such a deep and meaningful and real conversation with someone I've just met. Yeah. Rather than talking about the weather, which, by the way, is quite wonderful today. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> it's barley. It's supposed to be wonderful. Mm. Uh, tell me a bit more about your work. Because when we connected, I was intrigued about how your, your work around relationships had evolved and, and, and sort of how you approached that. And I, I, I think you're speaking about it already mm. in a way. My, uh, it's a constant evolving thing, but the, the three areas that I work in, one is what I mentioned before, teaching men to love with their fists, the Ubud Fight Club. Um, the other is working with people in small groups or one-on-one -on -one to help uncover their genius, the superpower, their gifts in the world. And then the, the third one, I work with my wife and we coach couples to deeper levels of understanding around intimacy, connection, and sexuality. Can you talk to me about intimacy? Because it, uh, I'll explain why. Shoot. I have been having an ongoing discussion with my wife and we're not speaking out of school here because she will be quite happy with me to share this about how, what I am looking for in our relationship when it gets busy is more intimacy mm. and that, that that falls away. And somehow mm -hmm. this is not pointing fingers at her, me or the universe, that, that, that is what I feel Miss, gets missed just intimacy and connection because mm. the, the stuff gets in the way 100% so I'm interested in your ideas around intimacy and this is again I'm just going to scratch my own itch someone else will pick up what you're putting down as well out there and that'll be wonderful but how do you define it what do you see as like some important aspects in a relationship to foster intimacy and I'll leave it there well, let me speak directly to the example that you talk of, because it's one of the most common dynamics we, we have. Mm -hmm. And the dynamic is something like, um, you know, life is busy, right? Yes. When I feel good, 
good meaning, have space, feel close, feel connected, then there'll be space to have intimacy. Yes. Right? So that's the underlying belief. It's like, I want to. It's not that most partners aren't, no, I don't want that. But I want to wait till the kids are at school or have a babysitter. I don't have any pressing work to do. So my chakras are aligned. The moon's in the right place. The, the sun's in Saturn. The right time. Exactly. The mythical right time, right? Mm -hmm. um, but as Esther Perel will say, most couples' intimacy dies waiting for spontaneity. Right? And it's a, it's a chicken and egg thing. So I can understand the, the feeling of like, when everything's good, we'll have intimacy. Because that is what it's like in the beginning, because it's put at a different level of priority. Different and chat. it's spontaneous. And totally. Because they it's, are your world for whatever time. And the sex act is amazing because it's new and fresh and it just happens. There's no expectation. There's no scheduling. Yes. There's no, There's no we'll kids. Do, we'll do that on Thursday night after the kids have gone to bed. Yes, yes. totally. <laughs> so the, the, the radical change in paradigm for lust or passion and long-term love flips that in the head. It says, in order to feel good, you must make time for intimacy. And what we find is when we guide couples to having a deeper, more consistent, intimate practice, then suddenly they're less annoyed with each other. Suddenly work doesn't feel quite so annoying. Suddenly they feel they have more resources and resourced self to deal with their kids or the purpose or the relationship or the partner. So it's switching the cart before the horse, so to speak, and saying yes. actually intimacy within a relationship is the oil to the gears of having a smooth and beautiful life together. I like how you've put that. I've um, in a previous life when I was business coaching, I would always explain to people that confidence doesn't come before action. Many people's aspirations and success dies before it starts because they're waiting to become confident before they do anything. <laughs> and the confidence comes by succeeding and to succeed, you've got to take action. So it's, you almost have to take the leap of faith to start. Hmm. It's that priority is inverted. So what you're saying strikes me as being very similar that when intimacy becomes the priority and not something that can only happen at the right time, then the right time comes. Totally. Yeah. Okay. I love that. Totally. Love that. And I think out of when we talk about intimacy, we, we're talking about connection and we're talking about being in that relationship, like fully in that relationship, not waiting for time to have relationship totally and then honestly the easiest <laughs> the easiest and perhaps least romantic way but most important way to do this is start scheduling scheduling and doing practice sessions so literally sitting down at the start of the week and you know whatever your schedule allows it's like maybe just once a week for two hours not a date dates can be nice but you're actually making a time to be physically present with each other doesn't have yes. to be sex, but some kind of connection. Mm -hmm. It could be 20 minutes, you know, maybe you schedule in two, It's a lot of, a lot of time for sex when you're 45. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. That was great. The levity. Uh, 
that's the boy in me still you see yeah kind of joke that's about sex no but but you're right at intimacy I, that's another part of the discussion where somehow there is a miscomprehension or a, a misattribution of language that intimacy equals sex yeah i've had some some of the most intimate moments i've had with my wife have had nothing to do with sex true that and and the connectivity you know sometimes the sex act is wonderful and then it finishes mm. and then you move on to something else mm-hmm. okay and there's not, i'm not and i'm not judging that as well and yet you can have moments where the intimacy just continues and there's no finality there's no definite end point 100 mm. my wife and i have our escape for ourselves has not been dates lately it's been walks just finding mm. moments to go for a walk mm. and so within that walk whatever comes up in terms of conversation or connection just comes up there's no preconceived what should be like sometimes a date night you're like, well, what are you supposed to do on a date for sure whereas uh, just having space is a lovely thing which Huge. for us is outside of the house let, let the children do their thing and create their own chaos and we can go out and have some quiet, some space. And if that's talk about the mundane things, okay. If that's talk about the deep and meaningfuls, okay. Yeah. That's great. How do you uh, either coach? I mean, it depends how much you want to share or, or how do you in your relationship like foster intimacy? What, what are some of the ways that you would do that? Whether that's yours or that's within your coaching practice? I mean, they're very similar because I like to teach from what I experience is Mm -hmm. wherever I can, what I know. Um, So we have a, we have a continually evolving intimacy practice. We've had a, an intimacy coach ourselves since month three. I've been working with him for a long time. He's one of David Data's helpers, assistants. Um, He's an amazing dude. He's 60 years old, been married monogamously for 10 years, has eight hour lovemaking sessions with his wife. And I'm like, that's the kind of man that I can, that I want to learn from. I don't want to learn from the polyamorous dude or the dude that's speaking about relationship as single. That dude, he's amazing. Because it speaks to you. Because what I want to have in my future is a relationship filled with passion and, and intimacy and friendship and love. And those things are a paradox within a relationship. So passion and intensity of intimacy, sexual desire and attraction require newness, variability, changes, a little bit of instability. Love requires the exact opposite. (laughs) Love requires stability, trustworthiness, accountability, reliability. So you have this paradox where in the beginning, all of the newness is really exciting. And then later on, the, the love builds up. And suddenly you're interacting more with lovers or friends or sorry, as friends or um, more as friends than as lovers. And it's a paradox. You have to hold these two together. Mm-hmm. So the way it's a long way of saying is in an intimate practice is what we do is we create time to, to be less of friends. <laughs> we create time to be, have a, like a dedicated sexual practice. So we, the main way we coach couples in this is it's like, all right, we'd speak to them about what's going on in their sex. Um, let me think of an example. So 
you know, we were speaking with a, a couple where, and this is very, very common, where the story is her libido is low and his libido is high. That's the story. She doesn't actually know if she likes sex that much and definitely not as much as he does. Usually this is a misunderstanding of how to touch a woman and a misunderstanding of what a pussy is and how to touch it nine times out of 10. Well-meaning misunderstanding. So what we do is like, all right, you've got to practice this week, schedule it in, and it's 30 minutes. The, the, the first 10 minutes, first you notice her pussy before you start touching her. The first 10 minutes you touch anywhere in her body that's not an erogenous zone, not a nipples, not a pussy, whatever it is. And then, and then you can go to breasts and nipples. And then for the final 10 minutes, you can explore the pussy. And then you can take another photo or have a look at the pussy again. And for the first time, for most couples, they see the difference between an engorged, um, turned on pussy that has erectile tissue, just like a cock does. And they understand that, that when she thought she had a low libido or a, a lack of desire in sex, it's just that she's had sex for most of her life before she was ready and neither of them knew. Mm -hmm. So it's a, we look to the problem that that couple is experiencing and then we make a practice container that, that works and speaks to that problem. And it could be anything from role play to toys to whatever. Magnificent. It's, it's, it's nice to have a very practical way of, of walking through the door. Yeah. Yes. yes. And also giving guys a game they can win. <laughs> you know, like most, well, a, lot of, a lot of men have a feeling like, I don't, I don't know what she wants and she can't how tell me. You, mm. you know, and then you get discouraged because she's wanting something that she doesn't know how to say. And that you feel like you're not doing it right. So why do you even try? I love That's that. tends to what happened. And I mean, I don't know how both parties could not enjoy that experience. Yeah. And I can see that opening up the opportunity for discussion and conversation, even in, in that moment, because it's not okay. Right. Yeah, everything's functioning enough let's get the act on because sex is penetration yeah and then when when we're done we're done doesn't have to be that way yeah, yeah. so good i like that some of the most beneficial and enjoyable sexual experiences that i've had have been exploratory mm. say more just the you know the, the touching the conversing mm. the Yes, no, maybe, I'm not sure. Let's see something else. Can you do mm -hmm. this? How does that feel? Mm -hmm. And it becomes almost a conversation. Totally. Rather than the goal is the end point. Yeah. And where's the intimacy in that? You're connected for as long as it takes. And then away you go. And what did you learn? And the end point is a bit of a fucked up idea because <laughs> it really, it, no, it really is. It really totally is. is. Most men come under seven minutes. Most women don't experience deeper states of orgasm until 45 minutes of penetration plus. 
So it's like, what is, what is happening is two totally different conversations. Exactly. And, and, and well-meaning is just because of a misunderstanding and a miseducation in the area, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, for guys, one of the things we'll always bring in is some form of non-ejaculatory practice. And that's a game changer, you know? I can remember when I first met my wife and we were talking through that kind of stuff. Like the, mm-hmm. uh, there's a wonderful book that was out many, many years ago called the um, multi-orgasmic male. Great book. Yeah. I don't have it on my shelf anymore. I can't remember what happened to all these books, but we were talking a while ago. And she said, you could do that with you. I should never been with a man and I'm not, mm. I'm not trying to belittle any other men should never been with a man who had that understanding that, that mm. this is possible. That, mm-hmm, that there mm-hmm. isn't the goal isn't to get to the end of the race mm. that it's okay to do the you know penetration's part of the activity let's move to something else but like we can stop that erection can go away still have a wonderful experience without a raging boner totally. it's not it's not required it's not part of the you can stop in the middle and have a conversation you can stop in the middle and change the velocity of the activity and have your peaks and troughs, which is exactly what life's all about, ebb and flow, rather than it always having to just rise until crescendo. Totally. And uh, yes, I am still surprised when I talk to men who don't have this understanding of what's possible. And I remember, you know, flippantly said, you know, most men don't know how to drive their own cock. And she just, that was a, you know, it was a bit, it was a very flippant way of saying it. She's like, it's so true though. And she spoke to some of her experiences with men being uncertain about how all of this worked and what was possible and what the activity could be rather than what it was. Yeah. Coming full circle back to the start of our relationship where clearly we're not modeling this off our fathers, but our understanding even via osmosis from movies and from stories and from song. And this is what the act is. Well, mm. okay. Is, it, is that what's expected of me? Mm. Yeah. And then, I mean, it would be, it would be a can of worms to talk about pornography because I, I see that there are pluses and minuses. Maybe the better word for what I would term as being positive would be erotica. Unfortunately with the, the lay of the land as it is now with the need for instant gratification and hyper arousal and all of this type of stuff, it tends to feed on itself and become something that's not useful in any way mm. other, other than for a, an immediate titillation. So even that as a tool is anyway, I'm again, that that's a can of worms, how that, how that feeds into this misunderstanding of what is what. Mm, huge. I can't even remember who wrote that book now. Multi-orgasmic male. Mantak Chia. Thank you so much. I had so many of his, so much of his work in and around Qigong and things like that as well. Yeah, he's a great teacher. It was a great book. My lighting is just having a heart attack at the moment, but that's okay. We'll just leave it there. Ah, it's so refreshing to hear how you speak about that. Thanks. There man. was something. There was something else that you said. You talked about intimacy there was something in the middle not the relationship work what was the middle thing that you talked about was something that you did hunting genius thank you yeah 
I help people find their genius. Because we all have it. Yeah. We all have it. So I feel that some people get caught up thinking that they have no genius because they're in, stuck in the comparison game where their friend's very good at playing chess, but they they haven't worked out that what they're good at is fixing cars or something like that. And they don't realize that's that, that mechanics is their genius. They're comparing really? themselves. Einstein or someone I'm going to misrepresent whoever said it was that you can't judge you know if you judge an elephant by its ability to climb a tree for example it was I'm paraphrasing yeah. of course you'd think the elephant's a dummy <laughs> yeah 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 I, yeah can't remember the exact quote but it's just such a profound I, I thing think it was, like, well, that's so I think obvious. it was a it was a fish. You can't if you judge a fish by ability to climb its tree, then you judge it as an idiot. And then there's <laughs> this meme. There's actually one type of fish that, that grow climbs trees, climbs mangroves. And it was just a meme with this fish up a tree saying, I find this offensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, which yeah, just I mean it, it's when the absurd's actually pointing to something profound, it's yeah, pretty mm. amazing. It's pretty amazing. So all right. A uh, or jump in the deep end. How how does one find their own genius? Mm. Um, and while you think about that, there are listeners saying, "Why can't we just keep talking about sex?" <laughs> Maybe I later. Two, I find the two pretty related in some ways. I think uh, the the definition of genius, just for people who are listening, is is the unique gift that you come into the world with, and it's a very old idea. So it's an idea that we've actually forgotten. Mm-hmm. So I'm using genius in a slightly different way, not to mean not maybe the modern Elon sense Musk or, or Newton, but as, as in the gift that you have. And the idea is that your soul has a gift on the other side. And when you come through the veil into this one, your purpose is to uncover the script on your soul. So the thing that you have to give to the world. So it's this form of genius that I'm speaking to. So the idea that I'm talking about is that there's nothing you actually have to have to learn or attain or to do to get there. You've already got it. But it's already got it. And it's remembering. And there's, Thank there's you. many, many, many ways to remember, but oh, can I use a can I use an example here? Please. Whatever this helps. is the way this is the way that I like I like to think about it. So imagine you you have to you're thirsty. So you have to buy a bottle of water and you walk into a supermarket and you have a huge aisle in front of you and it has 325 different bottles of water. Sounds about right. Right. In, in the mind realm, which is something you pointed to at the start of the conversation, you can go, which one should I choose? Well, that one is a liter. That one's 500 mils. Oh, but that one's $4.70 and that one's three. So the price isn't quite right. Or, that one's from Fiji and, and you know that one's from Arizona. And you can you can spend your entire life actually comparing in the realm of the mind, thinking that you have infinite options or 325 options, and you can get stuck in that water aisle trying to choose, overwhelmed by the paradox of choice. And die of thirst. And die of thirst, exactly. <laughs> So the other idea would be that before you walked in there, someone that you knew and trust, a mentor, an elder, said something very simple to you. 
said inside that supermarket on that aisle, there's 325 bottles of water, but there's actually only one that's meant for you. So that when you walk into the supermarket, you're not looking at the mind realm of price and size and shape. Instead, you can step back and see the whole aisle and feel where you're being pulled towards. And then you get pulled towards, for whatever reason, this one bottle, bottle down the bottom shelf and you pick it up and you're like, ah, oh, that has Mount Agum in it. Reminds me of the time that it was in Bali. This always hydrates me, this idea, let alone this water. And you look back up and you realize there wasn't actually a choice of 325 bottles. There was ever only one that you ever could have walked out of that supermarket with. And profound. That's the way that I think about genius. We're in a paradox of choice with an inherited belief from culture, from our parents, that you can be anything. It is a damaging idea, even though it's well-meaning. What I'd like to suggest to people listening and people that work with me is actually that you're meant, you're meant to do something. You're meant to be something. And that is by remembering, by stepping back, by trusting the pool of your own intuition rather than the, the crazy making of the mind in comparison. It's a little bit like what you've, you're sorry, it's a little bit like what you set up here. What I, what I read in your messages in the group that you have is that it was just a calling. You felt a pull oh, to do it, right? I can't do anything else now. <laughs> yes, exactly. I can't. I, I worked out a long time ago that coaching, whatever the fuck coaching is, is what I have to do in, awesome. in, in some way. I don't know what the content of that will be, but I need to share wisdom with people. It doesn't have to be my wisdom. Sure. So today we're sharing your wisdom with whoever decides to listen. Sure. I'm just lucky to be the conduit and I get to pick it up as well. <laughs> but that's what, the, that's what the coaching calling is. And it took me a long time to work out what is almost what is my purpose, what is my calling, that, those kind of questions that you can ask. And for me, it was a need to be able to yeah, see past those 325 water bottles because mm. I have so many ideas yeah, and I have so many things that I could do. Yeah. But what am I pulled towards? 100%. Now for me, for a long time, I resisted this idea of heart thinking versus head thinking. So it was a very low. I come from... Out of, out of high school, I went to university and studied computing. So it's very procedural. It's very logical. Everything's binary. Sure. Like literally binary. If this, then that. So that's where I lived for a long time. It wasn't until that I was allow, allowing myself to think with my heart, feel with my heart, that I worked out. It's, it's okay. This is all okay. Go with it. Because that's, yeah. that's where you're being drawn towards because it's the thinking that pushes you away from that. 100%. Calling. And that's where the Calling. voices of, I can't do that. I should do something else. There's more money that way. Mm. But that guy's got a boat and you don't have a boat. 
uh, once uh, this is true for me, I can't say it's true for other people, but, but letting go of thinking what's right and just allowing it to present has been a, a profound shift for me. Mm. Well, it comes and, back to and, what you said before about thinking about life and experiencing life. Yeah, big difference. Uh, I've had f- friends that have known me for a long time come up to me and said, like, you are different now. Hmm. Oh, shit, okay. Uh, I'm not meaning to be. I'm, I'm not purposefully putting a new mask on. I, I believe what that is, is people sensing that I'm in it, not thinking about it. Hmm. How does that feel? It feels wonderful. I feel the most mm. free and relaxed that I've felt for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's great. Like I know old friends of mine, if they listen to this, they'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Mm. You're, on, you're on a different wavelength now. That's all right. You have your journey. It's okay. I don't mind. Not offended by that. Mm. Yeah, and I've had, I think that, and I, I think this is true for everyone. I, I feel this is true for everyone. When you are prepared to let go of your preconceptions, that's where the opportunity and the possibility is. It's, it's being okay with not knowing and not knowing everything and there being other stuff out there that it's okay that you don't know and you can come to it as a novice and that's okay. You can be completely uncomfortable and it's okay. I could tell you a conversation of intimacy 10 years ago would have scared the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah. Why do I know enough about intimacy? I've been with all women right. before I've had relationships. Yeah. They've all failed. Totally. It's probably been my fault, but I know everything. Yeah. So back to this idea of genius, personal genius, I've been seeing the word superpower around a lot lately. It's just amazing. It's the reticular activating system, buying the red Commodore and all of that again. Yes. Superpowers. Speaking of which, my my boy's out the back playing with a puppy. His superpower is crazy, I think. Wonderful craziness. (laughs) Boundless boy energy. That is, that is a needed superpower in the world. Oh, Wonderful yeah, craziness. Just, uh, he's got a beautiful kind of craziness about him. If you saw his hair at the moment, you'd understand what I mean. It's just, it's mm. out there. It's, it's our own little entity. Genius. So do you have some practical advice about tapping into one's own genius or investigating what that might be or quietening all the other bottles of water out there? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I understand it's probably a process when you're working with someone, but I feel that if someone can have a little bit of a success, even with one little thing, then it it allows the doorway to open up just a little bit. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Well, maybe we can try something. Do you okay. for that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there's a, there's a poem by Rainer Marie Rilke, German poet. And it goes like this. <clears throat> Sometimes a man stands up at the supper table and walks outside and keeps on walking toward a church he knows stands somewhere in the West. 
and his children lay blessings upon him as if he were dead. And another man who chooses to stay at home dies there amidst the dishes and the glasses so that his children must go far out into the world to find the church that he forgot. One of my favorite poems of all time. Mm -hmm. I don't know that so I've then, heard that one before. There's a question that comes from this, which is what is the church that your father forgot that you've been searching for? Wow. Ha. Huh. What would you say? I was feeling. Hmm, say more. I think it's exactly what I've been speaking with you about the whole time. Yeah. Experiencing and not thinking about it, being okay with not knowing, yeah. embracing the chaos rather than control, not towing the line, doing what I sh I've told I should be done because we were talking about generational stuff earlier. Yeah. My dad being the son of two post-World War II Polish immigrants. So it doesn't take much to imagine what that is all about and what the yeah. rules and the norms are. As a boy living on a farm with two Polish parents who have wartime trauma in a new hmm. country. Hmm. So that would be my answer. From here to here, moving right. from the head to the heart. Something I like, see my I see my dad. My dad's doing that now. Yeah. Much later in his life. Hop it's more it, difficult in. for him to do it. Yeah. And he's doing it in a different way. Often happens towards men later in their life. And you know, if you talk about the church that you've been searching for, it sounds something like wholeheartedness, right? Right. So then you've yeah. created your your voids create your values. So in the void of having that growing up, it's something that you highly prize and that you search for. I'm putting words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm no, wrong. No, 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 no. I was, I'm just thinking about talking about void and value there. That's just, that's profound. It's, the, it's huge. The, the wholehearted thing for me is it's my language in and around. Jump in and experience your life because if you don't, it's, you're, you're half-assed. Yeah. Which is my first 40 years, maybe not first 40 years, but we'll call it maybe, maybe we'll call it the first act of my life. Let's call it the first 30 years. Love it. And assume that I've got 90 plus years in my in my days. It was really half-assed where I was trying to think my way through it all, but very disconnected. Misunderstanding that to get what I want is to unthink it. Right. Which is you know, very Alan Watts. Yeah. Totally. I was putting I was putting the grid over the over the terrain hmm. and thinking life was the grid. Yeah. yeah. So the second act of my life is moving into the experience of it. Yeah. And I was having a conversation when I was sharing with my men's group last night that my I'll use the word challenge or else I'll be stuck here looking for the correct word in my mental thesaurus. But my challenge is stepping into the experience of life, but also managing the logistics mm. 
of let's say managing a family and managing a business and all of that mm. kind of stuff and not not living life like a spiritual yogi and forgetting that when i cross the road i actually do have a physical body and i yes. can yeah i can be killed so uh balancing the two and perhaps my third act is something deeper and more profound than that i don't know but I, i'm open to that now whereas the first act was closed off right and now that you think about it it's uh, uh sorry now that you are talking about that and i'm thinking and processing i remember a tradition where the the coming of ages for the man is like the killing of the father mm. me metaphorically speaking so perhaps that's what we're talking about here with your favorite poem of the church and father forgetting that and so you've got to kill that belief system off you to reach your own church and to recognize that you're you're striving for something that your father forgot you know you're mm. filling the gap of what you felt was missing like if you if you grew up in a wholehearted household that embodied the values that you're embodying now, mm. then you probably wouldn't be having this conversation with me because you wouldn't feel pulled towards it. There'd be a different void. There'd be a different void. Mm. Now, so the way that this relates to genius is it's one way that I, because you can't come at genius head on. You can't say, what's your genius? Oh, look at your life because that's going back to deciding between the water bottles. You actually have yeah. to get out of the binary. You have to get out of the, the mind space and come it to from the side, down beneath, over top. So the ways that I tend to work with people is through story or poetry or reflection um, through inquiry that it's doesn't hit hypnotic, it head on. It's a very hypnotic method. I think so, especially when it like some of these longer some of the stories, even short form stories that are five or 10 minutes, these stories that have been around for hundreds of years, they have well so crafted. much magic within them, you know, that it does. That's why they've lasted. Hypnotic. Exactly. Exactly. So that, that's, that's the way I like to approach genius from the sides, from the tops and from the bottoms rather than the head mm. on. And you can have one short two verse poem like that and be like, holy fuck everything that I'm doing right now, <laughs> the calling of my life has something to do with that. I felt a lack of when I was a child. It's like, okay, that helps me when I'm standing in front of those water bottles. Cause actually I know that I'm not meant to be going to computer programming. That's not what I'm searching. That's not what I'm embodying. No, I can look at that at water and find the one that most represents to me full living life full living heart, whatever it is. And I pick that up and then I run with it. Yeah. That's funny because I can remember doing similar processes all the way through my life, which were, the question was more, what are you good at? Yeah, exactly. It's a fucking, it's a well, trap, man. That was a question I got when I was 16. Uh, and my answer was I'm good at computers because I remember being in the computer lab finishing my assessments that were supposed to take a term or two in about two hours mm. and then going and fixing all of the computers. Mm. So if someone asks, what are you good at? I, I'm good at computers. So I end up doing a computing course. Now I loved it because there was problem solving and there was creativity and there were, it ticked a number of boxes, but it, it wasn't fulfilling. I mean, I can see this looking back 20 odd years 
25 years now. I couldn't see that then. And then there was the implicit pressure of you have to go and get a good job so you can get married and have 2.3 kids and retire when you're 65. That story. Mm. If I went back now and talked to my teenage self, I'd, I'd say go and do a Bachelor of Arts or philosophy or psychology or something in and around that where you can investigate experience and make your mind up later. <laughs> Like, yeah. Or go and have a year traveling around the world, like go and backpack with no money. You'll work your shit out pretty quick. Totally. Or as you know, kind of looping back to the beginning with questions, asking what lights you up. What gets you it's most just, excited? It's such a different question to what are you good at? Such such a different question. It takes away the preconceived notions of what should and shouldn't be. Mm. And sometimes it can be weird shit, but Man, people do weird shit. I, have you seen this documentary, Fantastic Fungi? Yes, I watched it last week. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Yeah. 100% yeah, on Rotten Tomatoes. Holy shit. Uh-huh. That guy, the main guy, is to me yeah. just a great example of Stamets. following what lights him up, right? Like Stamets, he finds yeah. a mushroom, gets blown away, has an experience where he loses his stutter because he's into mushrooms. What was all that about? That was that great. Was I mean, again, that's that's trance stuff going on there as well. We could talk about that totally. for hours where we weren't. But he worked he out then, that he didn't need he, the stutter. He didn't need the stutter. And then he got so he was so following what lights him up as curiosity. And if anyone had said, you know, what are you gonna do with your life? It's like, I'm gonna study study mycology and mushrooms. I'd be like, You're crazy. You need a real job to provide for your kids and family. You're and not good at mushrooms. You can't <laughs> yeah. do that. That's not a real job. You know, what are you actually, yeah, how are you going to, what? How, and yet now he has a, a company with over a hundred employees mm -hmm. in this field that he loves and has loved now for 40 or 50 years. So That's no crazy. matter how, how, how weird the shit is that you're attracted to at any age, that's the thing that's worth following to mm -hmm. me. Like that's it because at the end of your life, if you follow that, then you'll feel, you'll feel like you've trusted your own pulling. If you follow the thing that you think you're meant to do, you'll sit in your deathbed saying, man, I wish I had done that other thing. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Superpowers. Superpowers, man. It don't have to be laser beams coming out of your eyes. Mm -mm. No, it's great. What's your superpower? Um, I think the, the clearest one for me is in facilitation. When I lead groups, I've led groups now for years. Um, and there's something, and I feel it even now in this conversation, it, come, it comes through, even though it's not a facilitated thing, but there's something to do with voice, it. there's something to do with speaking, that when I stand in the front of a group um, or lead a group, then I feel most connected to the divine, is one way to put it. I, most, I feel most lit up. I get out of my own way the most, mm -hmm. like my thoughts disappear and I can be in the midst of what I'm saying and what I'm doing and feeling the room at the same time. Yes. That's what really fills me up. That's my genius and how that expresses can be different. It's not a mission. Mission is different to genius. Genius is the thing itself. Well, that's an important point to understand, isn't it? Huge. It's like what you said before. It's like, you, you know, this is what you're meant to be doing right now. And you're not totally sure of what shape it's going to take. No, I'm not. I'm not. I've and I've let go of the the need for this to be financially 
<laughs> stellar. And yet, oh, and I'm happy to state this right here in the world can listen. I know that this will make me a lot of money. Hmm. More than enough. That like yeah, my man. own abundance. Because there is power in what's being shared in this group wisdom. Hmm. And it doesn't just have to be my stuff. I'm no mm-hmm. guru. Um, I was talking to, on the first episode of this podcast, I talked to the man who said, why aren't you talking to the world again? Because this is the third time I've podcasted. Hmm. So he, he gave me a kick in the ass and he said, well, this is what you can do. Why aren't you doing it? And there's no reason I'm not. I'm just going to do it, right? <laughs> this, is, this is how I'm hard pivoting right now. And then everything opened up. Anyway, I remember saying to him, when I was in the CrossFit world, I was one of the first people that adopted CrossFit in Australia. Mm. I opened up the gym, affiliated genesis of about 15 or 20 other gyms, some CrossFit, some not. Thousands of people trained. No one knows my name. Mm. In, in, like, if no one in the fitness industry other than the people from that day know who I am. Mm. I'm happy with that. Mm. I don't need my name out there. Uh, attached to that thing like if i can link people to different things i'm really really happy about that so anyway tangents again this podcast is all about tangents and i'm off on mm-hmm. i really like that idea of yeah if I, the way you talk about facilitation i have the same feeling in and around coaching mm. that connectedness to people the the almost gentle guiding towards something that that person needs or Mm. wants or is interested in or is curious about. I often use the analogy of the Sherpa that I'll help you climb the mountain and maybe take some of your load and guide you, but I am not Mm. climbing the mountain for you. Mm. And I can't promise that we will get to the top. You might decide that you want to turn back because you want to do something else or that a storm might come. You might fall. But no. and, and when we get back down to the mountain, I'll give you your load back. You can carry that all again. So, again, analogies and stories, metaphor, powerful ways. It's, par- it's, it's, it's a powerful thing to know and have a hint and a taste of your genius. Would you agree that for many people it's really frightening to be open to tapping into their own genius? Yeah, huge. Do you have any ideas on how someone can feel that fear and still investigate? Hmm. The one that comes through right now um, is a question I posed in my last newsletter is, is look at your last week and then imagine you're on your deathbed. Which experience from the previous week would you pay the most to re-experience? What would you say? Yeah, got, uh, me, walk in the bush with my family. Right, 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 right. So I would catalog this for the people that are stuck in the fear of it over a period of months. Mm-hmm. Each week, it only takes a couple of minutes each Monday, you write it out for a month, two months, three months. And you start to get this catalog of what is actually really important to you. Hmm. 
Which will and be it's so usually not, to what you think it is. It's usually not <laughs> answering that fucking email, right? <laughs> it's so true. Right. So some of it will be around, I'm sure, family and connection, because it's such mm-hmm. a big part of what it's live or brotherhood or friendship. Big. It's like, oh yeah, I really value those. But then you'll start noticing other little things like, man, when I go hunting for fungus, <laughs> I, yeah. it's just such a great experience. And you I start getting like that. Exactly. You start getting in the moment clarity and a reminder that you are going to die, which is a truth that in culture and the Western culture, at least we do everything we can to avoid even thinking about it. Right. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's going to happen. So when you combine that with the experiences that light you up, I think some alchemy can happen. Whereas the, from the, the fear of not doing it is, is outweighed by the fear of getting to your life and never having done it. Mm. And you're coming yeah. at it from the sides, not head on as well. So it's not as confronting. Totally. Because these people know, you know, if you're in a shit job and you're not liking your life, you know oh, that something needs to change. Been there. Right? Been there. So it's not, not about telling them, hey, you need to go follow your bliss or follow your passion. You need to go do what you love. That's not enough, actually. We have to come at it from a different way. Yeah, I've always found that the, the pushback on that follow your passion is I don't know what my passion is. Totally. And then you disconnected a purpose. We need a we need a we need a a process for you to find that direction. I think so. Again, and back to that idea of we were talking about intimacy and timing and priority and confidence and action. Horses and carts. Yeah. It it's often you you need the, the thing to break with inertia to start to create momentum. I really like that idea of. Yeah, thinking about what was important. And that, again, for me, just, I didn't think about that when you asked that question, as that was what comes through. And the first thing that popped into my head was the time in the bush with my family. Yeah. And I can tell you right now that that was not all wonderful time. There were complaints from the children and (laughs) there were insects biting us and there were, and yet I would go back there 10 times out of 10. Yeah. And yeah, none of it was, none of it was checking emails or any of that stuff for sure. You know, all of that stuff that we're told is that's what grows your business. And that's what takes you forward to financial whateverness or to success, whatever the hell success is. Yeah. But what would you do with your time? Where would you go? What would you be? What would you experience? What would you do again? One thing I've never done is got into the end of my week and gone, you know what, man, I wish I just spent more time scrolling on Instagram. <laughs> Has anyone maybe except the Instagram influencer who does that because that rocks their boat? I don't, I don't know. I'm sure there's some people out there that's the, that, 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 that is something tied up in their genius, as you say, an influencer or someone. I know some people that I look at their posts and I'm like, what? There's, you've found a channel for your genius for sure. But yeah. for me, mindless scrolling, which I fall into no, the trap I can't of. Do it. You can't, it's, it's, I can't do it. I, so I, wasting. Yeah, I don't. I, I've only in the last month moved back onto Facebook purely to connect with people like yourself. So I'm being very particular about my time mm-hmm. in that environment. I don't spend any time on pages. I don't spend any time in my news feed. I'm finding groups and interacting mm-hmm. in groups because they have a reason for existing 
and I and for a long time I avoided Facebook because it was you know, we can go back to the word toxic, but it was that what was toxic was my use of it, yeah, and not yeah, finding yeah, yeah, yeah. not finding the correct use. Totally. And Facebook, oh, sorry, uh, Instagram. The people I follow quite often post visually beautiful things. So I might spend five minutes having a look at some photography or some friends, family photos, and that's enough, but I, I cannot do this. I just, if I ever catch myself doing it, I know that I've just zoned out completely and I wasn't even really paying any attention anyway. So mm. what, I, what I needed wasn't doing these ones, the, the, the old thumb scroll. It was just a time to check out. Totally. Put the phone down, go for a walk at it. That's for sure. Or meditate or dance or work out something that brings you a clearer quality of nothingness. And another term that's completely misunderstood, the idea of nothing. Um, yes, yeah, super valuable one. But it's my Especially initial... Especially if you're a man. Oh, God. Is it what? It's my initial prescription for people, if there is such a thing as prescription, is 10 minutes every day, do nothing. What do you mean, mm. Adam? I mean, do nothing. Mm. But the two parameters, this is what you are allowed. You either sit or lie and, and do nothing. I don't care if your eyes are open or closed. You can't read, you can't listen to music, you can't have your phone. No mantras. If you think you think, I don't care. Let your mind do whatever your mind wants to do. It's okay, but you are doing nothing. If you need to physically move because you can't be still, then you can walk. But you're not walking with earbuds in listening to a podcast or music you're not on your phone while you walk. Preferably walk somewhere. You don't have to concentrate so much on the walking. So go mm. to the beach, go to a, go on a path through a park somewhere or something like that. Nothing. And invariably so these people are, Adam, I slept the best I've slept for the last 10 years. Because your brain's not going bananas when you fall asleep. Totally. Nothing's not your enemy. We're taught to keep doing things but nothing is a brilliant place brilliant place and so satisfying once you get it it's such a good place to be mm -hmm. you know yeah, it's, it's almost like touching revitalizing a hundred percent it's like there's that moment if you've had one of the days you speak of and you lay down and you're not let us get asleep but you're not let you you're not awake anymore you're in between mm -hmm. where you really touching the void would be a great way to put it that's so blissful Oh, I love it. Such a blissful state. And it's like, there's a way to bring that into your, that, your waking life. Mm -hmm. It's a way to experience it. 10 minutes of nothing, whatever it might be, meditation, whatever works, but touching that I, thing is hydrating. Yeah. I would suggest that the, the hypnotic state and various trance states, different doorways into the same state. Yeah. That they are a very similar state to what you just spoke of that, 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 twilight zone between awake and asleep yeah where you're relaxed and focused and yet the, the pressures are sort of gone away but you're not yet so relaxed that your body is hibernating to a certain extent and yeah, that is that is a space that is infinitely interesting to me at the moment that what i call the trance space and I don't want to get caught up in words because some people would like to call it something else, but meditation is very similar. Clearly hypnosis, 
breath work, even psychedelic states, whether they're brought on by a, a plant medicine or not. All just this interesting space. Again, that's void. Have you had cranial sacral work done before? Yes. That's, that's one of the, the therapies that really introduced me to that. They, they call it the long tide in cranial sacral, the thing you're referring to, and into that space where you're not asleep, you're not awake, you're, something's happening and you come out feeling grounded and centered and, mm. and it's an amazing discipline. Yeah, I've had it with sound therapy before where oh, I have a friend who is an amazing didgeridoo player. Ah, oh, cool. And you're just floating off on the, the vibration the sound vibration and away you go hmm. he does breath work as well but we were talking about the difference and he said you know you can you can enter with the breath or you can enter with the sound and support with the breath you can go both ways you can enter with the breath mm. and support with the sound and i did some work with a friend a couple of nights ago and he enters with the breath and then supports with sound hmm. and that was one of the deepest dives i've ever had hmm. i was just a profound i won't get into it now because it, it's a long discussion hmm. A long discussion, but it's, uh, so many doorways in. That's it's, it's yeah. It's interesting that you bring up that that, that space in between. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate your insights today. If um, if we don't draw this thing to a close for today, <laughs> we we'll, we'll go going. We will keep which I would appreciate, and maybe we should do a part two sometime. I think that would be beneficial if not just for the two of us <laughs> that would be great I'll be, so i'll be down for a part two and i appreciate you taking uh, the time and, and reaching out and thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and the different rabbit holes uh, i love a good tangent <laughs> thank you so much brother you're welcome man thank you yeah.